0: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
1: In the 1960s and 70s, women took for granted a certain degree of patriarchy and sexism and needed their consciousness to be raised about the fact that this is not fair.
0: Letty Cotton-Pogrebin helped lead the powerful wave of feminism that swept across America in the 1970s. Letty and I worked side-by-side, often during those years. Both of us contributed to the groundbreaking album Free to Be You and Me, and she was my editor for a couple of articles I wrote for Ms. Magazine. Letty and I have been friends for over 40 years, during which time we've had many conversations that have been delightful and that have helped me see things in a new way. This is one of them. A founding editor and writer for Ms. Magazine, Letty also is the author of 11 books, both fiction and nonfiction, all of them exploring what makes humans tick, what brings them together, what pulls them apart. And she's a very active activist in efforts to actually bring people together. For decades now, Letty has been experimenting with something that, as important as it was, seemed unlikely to work, if not impossible. But it does seem to work, and it seemed like an interesting place to start our conversation. One of the things that you do that really amazes me is you're able to bring together people who you wouldn't think would ordinarily be in the same room together to work on their problems, but you, you, I, think you I think you have an
1: unusual way of doing it. Yes. You could call me like a group groupie. <laughs> I love forming groups. I'm an organizer. Um, When I'm in the middle of an experience, it occurs to me, gee whiz, look, we're all sort of going through this. Why don't we create a space where we can talk about it further instead of just, you know, the march, for example, on January 21st, uh, 2017. So many women were going down on buses together and trains together and putting together carpools. And there was an urge to continue after that day because we were so energized by it. And that's what I have tended to do for the last 40 years is sort of pick up on that and create the chemistry, the space, the name for the group. And when I do it in an an especially organized political way, it has an agenda. For example, Christian... Muslim Jewish relations
0: So there's a group that you wouldn't expect to come together naturally. Right. So how do you how do you get them talking together in a constructive way? Do you talk about issues?
1: Well, first you have to try to zero in on the nut. The nut at the center of it all if you're going to do Christian Jewish Muslim is how do we feel about God? How do we feel about our faith? in general, and specifically, how do we feel about faith and feminism if it's a women's group? Uh-huh. So you can kind of galvanize and mobilize people by saying, let's find out what we have in common. So you can't start with Jesus and you can't start with Muhammad because immediately, you know, the Jews are out on one of them, the Muslims are out on another, You, but you can't start with the concept of God. So that, let's say your first conversation, if you're organizing such a group is, how do you see God? Suddenly, everybody has something to say. They don't have to defend Jesus, Muhammad, Moses, or whoever. They can start with something where they can recognize a little of themselves in each other.
0: Do you start right off with that, or do you start on a more personal basis?
1: You start on a more personal basis. But what what you were asking me is, how do you get three such disparate groups to really start talking about issues? Yeah, yeah. That's how you do it on the issues. You find one common theme, and then you riff off of it until you're comfortable getting to distinguishing one from the other, mm-hmm. and drilling down and saying, "You know, where do you see the other stand? What's the what's the place of the other in your worldview?" But that's again, once you're comfortable enough to get into substance, as you say, the place to start is personal. So, so how personal I'll do you, give you get? You
0: what? What? And how how much time do you spend on personal?
1: Um, Depends, but I'm thinking of a Jewish-Palestinian group that I helped to start back in the 80s. And I remember that a woman came in, and she was kind of buzzing with excitement, and we all said, what happened? And she said, my daughter just called me. It's her first menstruation. Hmm. And suddenly, we're all talking about our first menstruation, what happened to us, how we felt, were we shamed, were we horrified, were we glad, did we feel like women, did we feel besmirched, did we feel we had lost our childhoods? Or if our daughters were in that same position as that woman's daughter, how did we handle it? Did we teach her how to use a sanitary pad? Did we warn her of, you know, we have to always carry a Tampax with you? Uh, in my case, I was slapped across the face the mm. first day that why? I why because, for what reason because it's a it was a a Jewish tradition that at least my mother carried with her from the shtetl in Hungary. You slap a woman, a girl, across the face the first day she has her period, and you say a thing in Yiddish that prays to God that that be the worst pain she ever experiences as a woman. <sighs> Of course, it didn't work. <laughs> Excuse me. But it's such a wonderful concept. The mother is saying, I'm going to give you the worst pain, and it's only going to be a slap. And, of course, life gives women so many other horrible experiences. I can't
0: believe you've come to peace with this idea yeah. that, a, that you call it a wonderful thing. I just, it, I, can't, I just can't picture it as a wonderful thing.
1: Well, maybe you don't know how many other bad things happened to me <laughs> since then. <laughs> 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 the idea is, men, a minute I told that story, this was a room, this happened to be a pretty large group, the Palestinian Jewish Dialogue Group. This was a room of maybe 24 women, 12 and 12. And the whole first night was about um, our first menstruations, our embarrassments with menstruation, uh, our how, how it, it played out on our wedding nights or didn't. It, I mean, there was so much to say. And by the end of that first discussion, I knew those women at a level that probably, you know, people in their family don't know them.
0: The interesting thing about that is it sounds like once you've had that powerful personal conversation, when you talk about issues that ordinarily divide people and help people think of one another in terms of stereotypes, or you're the the person who believes that kind of thing— You can't do that anymore because you know them as individual people.
1: Precisely. So when you're ready on, let's say, the fifth session to talk about borders, Jerusalem, terrorism, um, the security wall that Israel built, the Gaza war, whatever it is that is contentious and um, a flashpoint in dialogue, you you have to see the person who's speaking as the one whose daughter was never able to have children, mm-hmm. um, who just told you, you know, I I I remember the day she had her first period, and then of course she never was able to have children, so it didn't pan out. Mm-hmm. She wasn't a woman, and you see that pain, and you're not going to scream at her about Gaza. You're not going to say, you know, uh, you took the land away to an Israeli you're going to remember this woman lived through something that you understand viscerally and emotionally, and you're going to just try to talk. You're not going to wound.
0: This you're reminds st- me so much of what George Mitchell is reported to have done in Ireland exactly. when he was working out the, the deal between the Protestants and the Catholics and ended that long civil war. And he, what, as I remember the story, was so similar to this, and it was day after day, during the day... They sat at tables and discussed issues, and at night they had dinner together and issues were forbidden as topics of conversation. Right. They could only talk about their childhood experiences right. or anything personal. Exactly. And the same thing was, I understand, in the Oslo Accords. They, at, In the evening, they got to know each other as people. And I think a Palestinian and... Uh, and Israeli became such good friends that they. one of them named his daughter after yes, the other one's daughter. that's
1: true. I did. I know somebody who was very involved, and I heard a little of that after the fact. They they humanized each other, and they remained friends, and they've shared the sorrow of its unraveling of yeah, the Oslo that, process. That,
0: that's the downside yeah. of making yeah. contact across the border. It's like in World War One, when the— uh, the Allied troops or the British troops made contact at Christmas time with the German troops and they put down their guns and they even played soccer together.
1: Yes, right. I can remember. Do you remember that wonderful movie where the, the two sides uh, were embodied in these two tank commanders? And so the Israel tank, this is in the Sinai Desert, and the Israeli tank comes up over a hill and An Egyptian tank comes up over the hill and the two soldiers, instead of shooting at each other, they get out and they hatch this plan. I'll take your tank and say, I captured it. And you you take my tank and say, we captured it. And we'll be done here. We won't have to kill each other. (laughs) That's so good. It's so good. (laughs) And that's a kind of, you know, paradigm is I take your reality away and, and I help you. I help you it helps your reality or I ta- I give you my reality to help your reality and neither of us will get hurt. And I remember a very transgressive thing that my Palestinian Jewish group one of them did back in the 80s. We planned after many 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 hours retreats in which we went through all the issues and all the personal stuff. We decided to plan a trip to the region the Palestinians would plan what the what the Jews would see, and the Jews would plan the itinerary mm. for what the uh, Palestinians would see. Mm-hmm. So we Jews planned to take the Palestinians to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in in Jerusalem, and into the Knesset. So they could see democracy in action and not think of us all as just colonializers, colonizers. And the Palestinians planned to take us into a refugee camp and to take us into a daycare center. Mm-hmm. And it was so marvelous, because as we walked and we had to walk in pairs, we walked one Palestinian, one Jew through Yad Vashem. I had never done that before in all my life. And I'm a child who remembers the Holocaust and lost one third of my family there. Here I am explaining the exhibits to my Palestinian sister. And she's crying. And she's in a place that has been used against her people. Like, how can you Jews who live through the Holocaust do this, what you're doing to us Palestinians? She's used to being combative. She's used to being pushback and militant. And suddenly she sees the world through my eyes. And in the refugee camp, the same thing happened to me. I'm watching her people be pushed by, um, um, what are those things on the end of rifles? Bayonets. Bayonets. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Mash. (laughs) Um, Being pushed by IDF bayonets. Um, being mistreated in a, in a refugee camp. This was way back again when Israel controlled everything um, inside uh, the, uh, before the Oslo Accords. And I'm saying, well, how would I feel if my old uncle was being treated this way? How could these 18-year-old Israeli kids be treating somebody this way? I see the world through her eyes. But you can't do that first. What if we had tried to do that trip before we had Before you dialogue. knew who they were as people. Exactly.
0: Yeah. That's, that seems to be sort of at the heart of the problem of solving these international and in, in, in multicultural issues. You, It's hard to get a whole culture to understand a whole other culture yeah. on a personal basis.
1: I will say one added thing. That's, that's obvious, but... The additional component that's almost incomprehensible to people who aren't women is that women are not invested in this kind of macho, I got to win. My people are the big shots, you know, king of the hill. We have no Trumpism in us, most of us, where we have to be the best, the greatest, the, the winner. And I say this after 40 odd years of doing dialogue. We're more invested in really coming to a together place than in sort of reifying and solidifying our separate greatness. We would consider it in most of our groups a triumph if we could be three steps closer to understanding and peacemaking rather than my narrative wins.
0: Yeah, yeah. Tell me more about these the the groups you've you've been part of mm-hmm. and initiated. You did, did you what you wrote an article about consciousness raising that was
1: Right. In, pretty in,
0: pretty at, at much at the at the beginning of the whole thing.
1: Very very much.
0: When it first came out and people wondered what it meant, consciousness raising, as some people may wonder today, what did you mean by consciousness raising?
1: Uh, the fact that in in the nineteen sixties and seventies, Women took for granted a certain degree of patriarchy and sexism and needed their consciousness to be raised about the fact that this is not fair. Sometimes the slave is complicitous in his or her own slavery because you don't notice. It's it's your everyday life. It's like sexual harassment. Gloria Steinem always says, we had no name for it, it was just called life. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing now as Man after man after man is exposed in this habit of power mongering over the weaker. These giants, intellectuals, representatives of the culture who kept women in a subservient position, who bullied and who abused, and in some cases worse, violent, um, and and made it a quid pro quo for keep the job or lose the job. So. If you're not in a state of consciousness about this is reprehensible, this is unacceptable, this is dehumanizing, I'm not going to accept it. you need a consciousness raising group
0: yeah and I think it's interesting that you, you used language to call attention to these things, for instance, what you just mentioned uh, sexual harassment i didn't didn't Gloria come up with that term
1: no. Um, A woman who recently died came up with that term. The Times gave her a really great obit. You can be sure that before the Me Too movement began, that woman would never have had an obit. Now the Times is doing reparational obits. Uh, Right. They're running obits for the past 150 years of women they ignored in the Times pages.
0: And the most um, widely used term is probably Ms. Yes, which you were you were one of the founders of Ms. Magazine. Right. And that term, before it caught on, there was a lot of joking about it and a lot of rejecting the idea that you needed not, you didn't need to identify a, a woman as whether or not she was married.
1: Yeah, like why? Do you, When I'm introduced to Mr. Alan Alda, I don't know if you're married or not. Mm-hmm. Why should you be introduced to Mrs.? Letty Cotton, Pogrebin, and no, I'm married. What is that? That doesn't matter. We're having a professional relationship here. We're talking about issues. My marital status is immaterial. Yeah. And that's true in so many contexts. Mm-hmm. The time the place where you I ever use my married name and Mrs is at the butcher's, you know what, it, what? I mean is mrs. pogribbbin's veal chop ready that kind of thing because <laughs> the butcher is not going to figure out Ms is the more respectful <laughs> term. <laughs> Talk about communication. You've got
0: to have a consciousness-raising group with butchers and women, or or women butchers and male butchers. Think
1: about how illustrative that is of your issue here around communication. I'm not going to be doctrinaire. Ms. was evolved as a way to raise the consciousness about how marital status is being used to put women in boxes can't hire Mrs. So-and-so because she's childbearing age and she might get pregnant and leave. I can hire Miss, you know, Plotkin because, you know, she just told me she never wants to have children and she's not married. So she's probably not going to, within reasonable time, uh, get married to a guy who said, I want to have children and leave.
0: But here I got Ms. Plotkin. Yeah. (laughs) I better not hire her because she's going to start an action <laughs> and take me to the human resources.
1: Yes, except if we are all miss. Yes. So, I mean, you know. And so that the-
0: spread, once it, it spread, yeah. it... It's universal now, at least in our yes. our society.
1: And we didn't make it up at Ms. We adopted it from a secretarial manual that dated back to the 1920s. Oh,
0: that's interesting. That's yeah. news to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell, tell me more about that.
1: Well, that, that there was a secretarial manual that uh, answered the question, what if you don't know if a woman you are writing to is married or not married? Ha, what what should I use, Mrs. or Ms.? And the answer was, neither. Just use MS the way we use MR. And that was in effect in secretarial manuals for 30 years by the time second wave feminism came around and said, let's deal with this. And we had to petition the New York Times for many years. I think it finally happened in like 1985, where Abe Rosenthal, who was at that time the executive editor, finally said, okay, style book. Miss from now on. And the only time you'll see Mrs. or miss in there is if the subject requests it. That's what's in the style book now.
0: When we come back, we talk about a whole other communication problem. Letty uses her own experience of a severe illness to help us understand how to communicate better with a friend who's sick. I have to say one of the surprises when we talked about this was the immense importance to her
2: of lamb chops. We'll be right back. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first-ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, Mild Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, Mild Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear
0: and Vivid. I'm Alan Alda, and I'm talking with Letty Cotton Pogrebin. Over the years, I think Letty has been very aware of how important it is to consider what the other person is going through. It seems especially important when the other person is a friend who's ill. So does this same attention to the personal and to the other person apply when you write your book, How to Be a Friend to a Friend Who's Sick?
1: Yes. Uh, in fact, it's um, there are optics. There's a visual that tells you that. I asked my publisher to give me a slightly grayed page when I spoke specifically personally about having had breast cancer. So if you look at my book, it, it, it's not discernible unless you actually open it up and see, put one page, sort of squish it and put one page next to the other. You will see that there are white pages in which I talk to, uh, talk about how to be a friend to a friend who's sick, an effective way to visit, the kinds of gifts people want and don't want, the things you shouldn't say, all the practical things are on white pages. Hmm. When I confess what it felt like to get my diagnosis, it's on a grayish page. When I confess what it felt like to have people give me stupid gifts, well, <laughs> it's on a well, grayish page. I have
0: two questions. and want to know what the stupid gifts were. But first, what <laughs> what's the value of the gray page?
1: To... Mark it as my personal story that pops into the book at different points. Uh, so you, you get out of this almost guidebook feel into, into a, a, a memoir a feel. Memoir,
0: yeah, that's great. So now what kind of, just mem- memoirishly, mm-hmm. what kind of stupid gifts did you get?
1: Well, I mean, when you— First
0: of uh, all, you were you were diagnosed with cancer, With
1: right? breast cancer, right. Yeah. The listener should know that you and I have been friends for over 40 years. So, you know, my house is full of plants. I have a big, huge window and it's full of plants. So you would think someone to bring me a plant is a nice thing. But that plant just goes on the windowsill and it's, it's not about me having cancer. I needed somebody to say to me, you've just come back from this diagnosis. You're facing six weeks of radiation. What can I get you? What do you want?
0: Yeah, that's that's the the, the perfect example of the personal.
1: The total Finding
0: out what the other person needs, wants, where they are, who they are. Who they
1: are. Who am I right now? And if someone had said, what do you want? I would have said lamb chops. (laughs) No, I truly would have said, please bring me long rib lamb chops and brownies. (laughs) <laughs> it's my favorite food and maybe pesto.
0: <laughs> because you you eat them all at the same time or
1: that you? would be my perfect meal. Oh, if someone so asked me what I want when I
0: shops g- with pesto well, and, yeah, and pesto brownies. pesto oh, pasta Pesto, oh, pesto pasta. Yeah. Okay.
1: That's my side dish.
0: You get so serious when you talk about this.
1: <laughs> I know. Because I had wished, I wished for somebody to ask me that. Because I wasn't going out to buy myself my comfort food. I'm, I'm sitting at home weeping and imagining myself dead in six months. Mm. The, the the key to this is to always start with, you know, I'm going to bring you something. Mm. I'm going to bring you something. So instead of me bringing you that horrible basket from Zabar's covered with orange cellophane full of waxy pears and old dates and figs, (laughs) if you just tell me what you want, I would say easy lamb chops, some kind of long thin spaghetti with (laughs) pasta with pesto and a brownie with walnuts,
0: <laughs> and then. But look, if you just came across those items in your cupboard and refrigerator, or you send out for them, all you get is those items which which you want. Yeah. But if a friend says, "What would you like?" and you name it, and the friend brings it, it doubles or triples yes. the goodness of the exact the interaction.
1: To the friend as well as to me, Uh, that friend feels I have given Letty exactly what she wants. I'm a real friend. I'm not somebody who went out and bought a bunch of flowers like everyone else or bought a plant that's going to sit there amongst all her other plants.
0: Here's the thing. If you feel better when you do this, the person giving and the person getting, if that feels so much better than buying the stock item, why don't we do it more? Why why do we shy away from getting into the personal in this way before we do anything else?
1: Yeah, because of, of Emily Post, who says, "Don't ask, just do." Not, I don't. I mean, I completely flip that on its head. Ask, but but don't ask in an offhand way. Like, when can I come over? I'd like to see you. You have to ask in a way that communicates your intent, like. When I go to visit somebody at a shiva, which is the first seven days after someone dies in the Jewish faith, you always bring something to eat. You don't bring a bottle of wine. That's it. You don't bring flowers. Those are maybe another faith does that. But for Jews, you bring food. When I go to a shiva in somebody else's house, the table is groaning with apple strudel, bagels, lox, and rugelach, which is this little rolled up crescent thing. And so I don't bring apple strudel, bagels, lox and rugelach. I call and say, "I know everybody's bringing bagels, lox, <laughs> rugelach. What do you need that nobody's bringing?" And guess what answer I get?
0: Pesto pasta.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no? No. Very far from that. <laughs> Toilet paper. <laughs> Because the house is full of visitors <laughs> and the people go through their toilet paper and, and no one has time to go to the supermarket. You're and,
0: killing me. Here.
1: <laughs> no one has time. So they're so grateful to get an actual a question about what they actually need. They will either say a paper product like paper plates, napkins, toilet paper, um, or, or they will say um, Pellegrino. Yeah. And coke, and that's <laughs> what they go through the fastest. And if you want to be a friend and communicate your needs in an authentic way, you've got to start honestly. It's somewhat,
0: you know, you're reminding me. I, I, wonder if anybody else listening to this is reminded of the same thing. You're talking about what? What do you like? What do you want? And it, I, it reminds me of Ruth Westheimer encouraging people to communicate about and, what in sex in sex and what they need, mm-hmm. love making. Where, whereas Emily Post would say, don't ask, just do. Yeah. And you can come come across a lot of misunderstandings yeah. that way.
1: exactly. Resentments. Then, then women resent the fact that men didn't figure out, you know, they don't like that, don't like that. Why you keep doing it? You know? <laughs> Can't you, don't you know yeah. I don't like it? Well, how am I supposed to know, you know? Well, um, I was thinking of um, another thing that I think is so important in Communicating in this time in groups, not in one-to-one and personal friendships, but in those marvelous groups that I have given me so much over the years, have helped me clarify my values, have helped me understand the other. I was in a Black Jewish dialogue group that I helped to found um, that met for ten years, ten years every Tuesday night, Wow. Uh, except in the summer, and. We happened to meet on the day after the Central Park Wilding crime. Do you remember that? Yes. Okay. A jogger was brutalized, raped, and left for dead. And five, I believe, five African American boys were r- arrested. And the Jewish members of this Black Jewish group came in that night to the meeting. We always had a had a potluck dinner and sat down and talked about anything until we had our subject on the table. And, of course, the thing we talked about was that wilding that had just happened. Yeah. And the Jewish women said, can you believe it? Those animals, how, how anybody can do that to a human being? And they were so outraged. They should be thrown in prison, throw away the key. And the black women in the group were silent. And finally one of us Jews said, why aren't you outraged? And the black women in the group said, we don't believe it. Now, today, we understand why they don't they didn't believe it, because they don't believe cops. Mm. Because cops have always lied about what black kids do. And so they were, their initial reaction was not horror at the crime, but were these boys arrested because they were black? Did they really do it, or are the cops framing them because it's such an outrageous crime that they need to put pin it on someone?
0: So what did you learn about groups? You were, you, you,
1: so what I learned is I, I looked at the same situation, a wilding incident, so-called in the New York Times. Wilding immediately suggests animals. And we had animalized five black children mm-hmm. they were really young because of the way the story was reported because of the bias against black boys, because of assumptions about the criminality of blacks, and specifically black males. And they, seeing the world through completely different eyes, had lived through so many times when cops pulled in blacks for things they didn't do, lied about blacks in court. They immediately characterized blacks as animalistic, savages all those words were used and you know what happened in that case all five were exonerated yeah so they were right and my first instinct was not at all to question authority because i'm white and jewish the cops are my friends i call the cops they come and get a cat down from the tree you know that's right. that's sort of the you know, the kind of classic example of the friendly cop to the women in our group the cop is somebody who roughs up her husband roughs up her kid, pulls her kid aside, bangs him against the car hood, accuses him of things he never did, of being in places he never was. And coming with that bias, I can't say I have adopted it completely, but I now see the world that way at the same time as I see the world my way. I introduce into my thinking the other's perspective.
0: The other's perspective, that that's the key I, I guess and i and i bring up.
1: empathy to it because i'm like if i were these women and i had my son david was black and was happened to be in central park with his friends which could have been because we live half a block from there and they got pulled in and they got called savages what would i feel you know i know my kid he didn't do this and here the cops are characterizing him i then become that black mother And every time since, when cops are just shooting blacks left and right, I think of that night. And I say, this is what those mothers knew and I didn't.
0: The idea that you can see something through another person's eyes, something that you, up until now, just never considered because you hadn't seen it the way they see it. How... How hard is that? What is is it possible to get better at doing that? Do you
1: think it's a really good question? And that happened in nineteen eighty-two or three. So how long has it been? Thirty well, something years. I walk through the world now, seeing the world through the eyes of those black women. I, they, mm. I carry them in my head and heart. So when anything happens, I, I, they click right in. And they say, wait a minute, but. And, and so I react as a white Jew who sees cops as friendly, and then I have these voices right. that I remember. Now, I'll give you another example that I think is you know, less melodramatic, perhaps, but equally dispositive. And that is the night after the um, convention at which Geraldine Ferraro was named vice president to Walter Mondale, we happened to have a meeting our group, our black Jewish group. So we're sitting down to dinner, and the Jewish women are jumping out of their seats and saying, we have a woman on the ticket. The black women are not so thrilled. And I, I'm saying, finally, I said to one of them, I think it was Harriet Michelle. She was the head of the Urban League in New York at the time. I said, "What? why aren't you excited? A woman, a woman. And they said, I'm excited. All of them said, We're excited, but we won't be really excited until it's a black man. Mm. Because a woman, you know, you put a woman on a ticket, you know, it's kind of like decorative or it's kind of like politically correct or it's kind of to bring in the woman's vote. But when a black man is on the ticket, that means that race will be transmogrified into something acceptable to the vast American electorate, because it's the black male who's always been suspected, who's always been vilified. They said there will be a seismic moment of transformation when we have a black man, and they were right, because what happened in terms of the excitement around Barack Obama was a cultural shift that we could elect a black man twice— We thought we had reached nirvana in terms of race relations, in terms of personifying power and wisdom and ability and intellect in a black male, much more so than when Jerry was second banana to Mondale. Mm -hmm. It just didn't register because, yeah, yeah, vice president, women are always sort of, you know, assistants too. Um, That was thrilling, but it wasn't seismic and the obama thing proved them right to me cuz i felt it in my bones of course we were wrong about it being permanent cultural change <laughs> yeah, right. but for 8 years it felt like it
0: we need to wrap up but before we go we've been asking all our guests seven questions roughly related to relating and communicating like First one, what do, you, what do you wish you really understood? Physics. Physics? What do you wish other people understood about you?
1: That even though I sound like Minnie Mouse, I'm a serious person.
0: <laughs> okay, what's the strangest question someone ever asked you?
1: Um, may I feel your head? I said, why? Because don't Jews have horns?
0: You're, somebody said that to you?
1: In Kansas.
0: Uh, I okay, here's the next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
1: By turning your back on them and walking away. <laughs>
0: okay. That's,
1: or else by saying, you know, you have spinach in your teeth.
0: Uh, does that work?
1: And they seem to want to go to the bathroom right away. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, here's one. Is there anyone you just can't feel empathy for?
1: Agent Orange in the Oval Office.
0: (laughs) You call him Agent Orange? I
1: do. I don't mention his name. No empathy, none.
0: Okay. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon?
1: (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Not at all.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So okay, the final question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship?
1: Oh, I have ended a friendship. Betrayal.
0: Betraying you? Yeah.
1: Betraying yeah. me. You know lying to me and me discovering later that I was lied to about something big.
0: Well, I don't think I ever will, and I hope I never do.
1: You never will. You never can. You're incapable of it. It's
0: been great talking
1: with you. Too, Thank you too, Alan.
0: I had a really good time talking with my friend Letty, and you can find out more about Letty at her website, lettycottonpogerbin.com. Her latest book is called Single Jewish Male Seeking Soulmate. She's also the author of a wonderful book called How to Be a Friend to a Friend Who's Sick. And if that title sounds interesting, check out my interview with Kate Bowler, who talks openly about dealing with stage four cancer and all the weird things people say when they don't know what to say to someone who's sick. Letty also talked about her experiences in the Middle East. In an upcoming episode, I'll be speaking with Senator George Mitchell about his time as a diplomat and negotiator in Northern Ireland and in the Middle East. We recorded that interview on the same day as the summit in Korea, and communication was very much on everyone's mind that day. This episode of Clear and Vivid was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, Our tech guru is Allison Coston, And our publicist is Sarah Hill. I'd also like to thank Harry Nelson and Jared O'Connell for coordinating and engineering our studio sessions. John Delore for additional sound. And my executive assistant, Jean Chimay, who knows where to put me at every moment of my life. You can subscribe to my podcast for free at Apple Podcasts. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at alanalder. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, novelist Anne Patchett tells me about how she relates to her characters. Some writers say their characters actually take over their story.
2: I don't like that old business about the characters tell me where to go, because I think that that makes writing into something magic. But that said, I go very, very far in and love these people, realize that every person I write about is some aspect of myself.
0: The celebrated novelist Dan Patchett on writing, empathy, and how men and women behave in a bookstore, next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts.